0: Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for those that are here. And Lord, several that are sick, we ask you to touch their bodies and heal them and give them back to full strength. And we ask you to just bless this time as we look at your word, guide and lead us in all that we see and study today. In your son's name, amen. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. And when he had called unto him his 12 disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of diseases. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first was Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and, his, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the publican, James, the son of Alphaeus, and, and Levius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, go not, in, go not into the way of the Gentiles and into the city of the Samaritans, enter ye not. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And you all, as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely you have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses, nor script it for your journey. Neither two coats, neither shoes, nor have staves. For the workman is worthy of his hire. And into whatsoever city or town you enter, inquire who is worthy, and there abide till you go thence. And when you come in into the house, salute it. And if the house be worthy, let your present your peace be come upon it. But if it be not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whosoever shall not receive you nor hear your words, Then when you depart out of the house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for for that city. So we're going to look at this for just a moment. Uh, The last two verses of chapter 9 said, uh, He said unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray therefore the Lord of harvest that he will send laborers into his harvest. I bring that up because... Remember always that the chapters and verses were added much later than the books were written. And sometimes they split them in really strange places. Like this is one of those places where he started talking about labors, Then he sends out his disciples that should have been a flow right, right through and shouldn't have had a break. But he called his 12 disciples. Now, if we recall all through this book, he's had many people following him. Many that are technically disciples, but he has twelve that he chooses to be his special ones. They're the ones that are going to be with him all the time, and and out of those twelve, he's going to have three that are even special to him. And that's uh, Peter, James, and John. Uh, Peter, James, and John that are going to be his inner circle. They're going to go up with him on the Mount of of Transfiguration, and they're going to be the ones that are really close to him. So he calls 12, and he gives them power. And this is kind of interesting. He gives them power to against unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal many sick and many diseases. So he's sending them out with power. He's still alive, and he sends them out. And this is what he does to us. He sends us out. So we get a little bit of training, and he says, go out and share. And we have the same power the disciples do. Why? Because it comes from the Holy Spirit living in us. So we have that same power. And then he names the, the apostles that are, that are going to be his, his uh, main 12. Simon, who is Peter, and Andrew, his brother. And remember, Andrew went to get Peter. Andrew's quite the evangelist. He, go, he went to Peter and said, come, come and see a man like none other that I've seen. And he brought, he brought him. And then he talks that about uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They were, they were fishermen. Zebedee's a fisherman. He owns a company of ships. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, who has the unfortunate title of Doubting Thomas to most people. Matthew, the publican or the tax collector. We read about his conversion just a couple weeks ago. And then James and Thaddeus and Simon the Canaanite and Judas Iscariot. And one of the things that we find as we read through the scriptures is some of these guys have different names. And it's pretty amazing that they've got names. We've got Simon, who's normally known as Peter. We've got Libius, which is known as Thaddeus. So we have all these guys. Matthew is also known as Levi. They have Greek and Hebrew names that they're known by, and sometimes they're interspersed in the Scripture. So you want to kind of keep that in mind as you as you read through these. He calls them, and he even names Judas, who's going to betray him. And Judas is sent out and given power to create miracles even though he's going to be the one who apparently is totally lost he's going to sell Jesus into into the uh, crucifixion and instead of repenting he's going to go and commit suicide and and die in as far as we understand in his sins now did something real happen to him in this period of time or was he a wolf in in uh, sheep's clothing the whole time we don't know We'll find out in heaven whether he had a real experience and is in heaven or not. I don't expect to see him there. and Most people don't. Uh, most people believe that he was a uh, wolf in sheep's clothing and, and all of this. But one of the things we never can tell because God's grace is how we're saved, not by works. And the Jesus gives the, the 12 some straightforward commandments. He says, go not unto the Gentiles or to the Samaritans. So they are specifically to go to the Jews. And this is going to be the command all the way through. Go, go ye into all the nations. And he starts out even when he gives the great commandment, uh, the great commission, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other most parts of the world. Paul, when he preaches, will go to the cities and he'll preach to the Jews first. And when they reject the message, he'll preach to the Gentiles. There is a school of thought that says we're all supposed to preach to the Jews first and the Gentiles. Well, as Gentiles, most Jews aren't going to listen to us. It's just the way it is. So it's hard to follow that testimony. Any of the disciples could go preach to the Jews first because they were Jews and at least they had an inn. They could go to the synagogue and stand up and preach in the synagogue because that was their right as a Jew. Uh, But he says here he says not to go to the Gentiles, not to go to the Samaritans, but go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Over and over Israel is described as the lost sheep. They're not following God and they, they know better, they should know better anyway, and yet they drift from God over and over again. We see it all the way through Genesis where they keep drifting. We see it in Exodus in a big way where they keep keep falling away from God. We see it through Leviticus, Exodus, uh, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. We see them pretty pretty firm, but they have a strong leader in Joshua leading them into battle. But they're still, he's always challenged them be a courageous and of good courage good uh, strength and choose you this day whom you will follow. In Judges, they keep falling and coming back and getting a, repenting, falling and getting repentance. Then they get their kings and most of the kings are bad, leading them into idolatry until they go into captivity. It's been their habit. Very stiff-necked people that keep turning away from God. But Jesus says, go, go to the house of Israel. And it says, As you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God's kingdom is here. Now, they always assumed that the kingdom was going to be a physical, literal kingdom where the Messiah was going to reign for the rest of their time and that they were going to be the center of all all time. And that is yet to come. The book of Revelation tells us about it. And the prophecies about that are going to all happen after the tribulation period. All right. Still in the future. A minimum of seven, seven years if we got raptured today. (laughs) But, and then after that will be the thousand year reign of Christ on this world. And that'll be a time when Israel is the center of everything. God, Jesus will rule from Israel and they will be the center of all and the kingdom and his kingdom will be established for a thousand years. And it's kind of kind of an interesting thing, because he's going to rule on this world, and that's what Israel's been waiting for. They missed the kingdom of God in the spiritual formation when he came and said, I'm dying for your sins so that you can have a relationship with the Father that you don't have. You don't have to go through these sacrifices anymore. You're not going to have to offer these, the blood of goats and sheep. And to, even to this day, the, the greatest desire for the spiritual in Israel is for the temple to be rebuilt so they can have the sacrifices again because right now jews live under the way that the rest of the world lives do more good than bad and god will accept that as 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 your righteousness even though everything in the old testament says it takes the shedding of blood for the remission of sin that your righteousness is as filthy rags everything about it shows that it isn't true That the rabbis drastically had to figure out what do you do when the temple's been destroyed in, in 70 a.d. So very shortly thereafter, they came up with the idea of good works. Do do more good than bad, and you're going to be okay. And they did it for very, you know, human reasons. We don't have a temple. We can't offer sacrifices. So they made the decision of good works. And even though it contradicts everything in the Bible, but again, it goes to show you for most Jews, they raise the Mishnah, the teaching of the rabbis, above whatever the Bible says. So in essence, they are what we would call a cult. They have another book that tells them what to think, how to think, beyond what God says. Any group that has another book that is more important than the Bible is a cult because they're, they're not believing God's word. We want to be very careful with that because it's very critical that we keep our mind focused on his word. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. It doesn't, if they're not in line with the Bible, they're wrong. And this is something that is, has to be understood and seen because if you have a great leader and they're saying something that's not biblical, that great leader, no matter how veered that person is, is not worth following. And we need to keep in his word. And he says he gave them power to heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, and he said freely you have received, freely give. He he says, I've given you the power, give it out. And sometimes we think, why aren't we in our day seeing this sick healed, healed, demons cast out, all these different things, the, the dead raised? I would say it's because we don't believe that God still does these things. Our faith keeps us from asking, and if we do ask, we're asking presumptuously a lot of times. And God has got the power. I've seen it over and over. I've seen many people healed through prayer, many people healed through prayer. I've not had the dead be raised from the dead. (laughs) I believe the lepers could be healed and no problem. The dead, dead, I'm not sure I have enough faith for the dead being raised, but if God told me to pray for somebody, I would. And I've, I've read the testimonies of missionaries that have done that, raised people from the dead, and seen God work in that way. And as long as he gets the glory, he would be willing to do that. But again, why aren't we seeing these things? Most likely because we don't have enough faith that God wants to work that way. And for us in this America, why do we not see many people healed, healed from their sicknesses? Because people would rather just go to the doctor because we're so scientific and so, so advanced. We, you know, we don't need a miracle. We'll just uh, go, to, go to the doctor and not go to God. And God says, fine, you want to go to the doctor? Go ahead. I can heal through the doctor as well. But, you know, cost money, cost time, cost effort. But we need to be able to look at, he is still doing these things. God did not cease doing miracles after the first century church. There's a lot of churches that teach that. A lot of Christians who believe that. That somehow, after the disciples died, God's power left. That's a very sad point of view because God was that way all through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament. Why would he change today? It makes no sense. We have resurrections in the Old Testament. We have healing of the lepers in the Old Testament. We have healing of sickness in the Old Testament. We have food multiplied in the Old Testament. We have Jesus doing it all. We have the disciples doing it all. So the real question is, why would God not be doing it today other than our unbelief? And that's really what it amounts to. Our unbelief keeps Him from working. the miracles that He wants to work. And we need to really start saying, God... We need to see your power again, because the world is not seeing that kind of power. They're seeing Christians who are weak, Christians that don't live up to what it means to be a Christian. People sinning all the time because they just don't have the faith to, to follow God.
1: A lot of cases where they'll go into healing and they've got to have the anointing oil. How, how does that figure in?
0: people put more power into it now I believe in anointing with oil yeah. I really do it is more symbolic than anything else it's not really meaning anything it represents the Holy Spirit the, the oil uh, there are people who think you can't have God move without the oil, without the oil and that's, that goes way too far the other direction it's more of a symbolic thing This is the, we're symbolically placing the Holy Spirit upon you to to do the work and I have been places where without that oil God doesn't move and that uh, goes way, way too far it's all faith it's all faith somebody's going to be healed somebody's going to be uh, healed with or without oil it's just a moment of prayer with God can he move without that faith? he can do anything he wants I mean, he, he can move without faith but he's not going number one, we have to have enough faith to start the prayer and ask for it it's important for us to do that. I will pray for anybody who asks me to pray for them, uh, heal, pray for healing. I'll pray for anybody. I don't always think that everybody's going to be healed because the Bible doesn't tell us that. Uh, the faith healers believe that everybody's going to be healed, and if, it's, if you're not healed, it's your fault. No, I will point to Paul who said, You know, I prayed three times for the thorn in my flesh to be removed, and God said, My grace is sufficient for you. And he said, Okay, call it Paul, that's enough. Enough is enough. I will, I will be your sufficiency. If Paul couldn't get healed with all the faith he had, then faith isn't the whole issue. Now, is faith an issue if I won't even ask? Yes, if I don't have enough faith of a mustard seed to even ask for something to happen, then nothing's gonna happen unless God sovereignly thinks it's more important for it to happen than not. And that's possible. You know, God can do whatever he wants. He can heal somebody. He can raise somebody from the dead. It's not a problem. And we hear the stories all the time about people raised from the dead, you know, that in 90 minutes in heaven, uh, miracles still happen, all these different books and shows and things that come out that talk about people who were dead and came back. I take most of those with a grain of salt, you know, and, and, and try to listen and say, okay, God, I believe you can. Did you? I don't know because I'm not looking for people to get rich and famous by their story. And that's what I see when I see these books and movies come out. These guys are trying to get rich and famous and get to be well-known, and that's not lifting up God. Now, if God is lifted up, I'll be all for it. If I see somebody who says, I got resurrected from dead because God raised me up and it changes their life and they're they're an evangelist telling everybody about God, then I will have a lot more belief in that in that resurrection than I do somebody who's just trying to
1: I think that answers my question then. You can have the absolute best faith in the world, but unless it's in accordance with God's will, it it ain't going nowhere. Right.
0: And this is what, and Paul's our example of that. I want to be healed. God take this away. He prayed three times, he said, and God said, okay, Paul, stop. I'm I'm not taking it away from you. And if he had, if he didn't have enough faith... You know, it's not faith. Obviously, isn't the answer. But we have all kinds of churches that will tell you it's all your fault if you don't, you know, if you don't get healed. And and it has destroyed people because they'll blame them. It, it's your fault you're not rich. If you just had enough faith to trust God more, you'd be rich. It's your fa- prob- fa- problem that you didn't get that you're not healed. It's your problem that your 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 aunt died because you didn't have enough faith to. To pray and have her healed, and they'll and they'll usually turn to Isaiah 53 and say, "By His stripes we are healed." See, it says you, we got to be healed. The only problem with that verse is, in context, it's talking about spiritual healing. Okay, it's not that God's against physical, but don't use that verse to try to prove, prove physical healing because that verse is all about, in context, spiritual healing. And that's not—I don't say that to say God doesn't heal because I totally believe that He heals, but not everybody is going to be healed. Some people are going to suffer the consequences for what they've done because it's the consequences. They're going to pay for what they've done. Some people, it's just God's will that they're going to suffer for whatever reason. And then we go back to what I said, God's will is what I would choose if I knew everything, all right? He's sovereign, he has the right to do what he wants to do and he has, but he's good and it will be for good. Why, why do some people suffer? I don't know, but God says, He's got a reason for it. There's a purpose in it and that, it's, that it will be for good. And what that is, and this is what we keep bringing up over the last few, many of us want to understand why God. God, tell me why. Well, God is not in the business of telling us why. He's in charge. He's the king. He's the ruler. And one thing I used to tell people when I was a manager, when they go, well, why are you doing that? Go, I go, don't, you don't need to know. I know why we're doing it. Sometimes I would tell them, but if they just had that attitude that they had to know the reason for everything, I usually didn't tell them. I knew what we were doing. I knew why we were doing it. They they didn't need to know. <laughs> Many times God's going to say the same things. I go, He'll say, "I know what I'm doing, and you don't need That's to know."
1: One of the biggest human traits that there is.
0: Oh. Know.
1: <laughs> why do we want
0: to know? Because really, we want to be God. Really, that's what we want to do. It's the oldest sin that there is. Satan committed it before creation. Adam and Eve committed it. And every single person, all of our problems basically boil down to, God, I want to be equal to you. I want to be in charge. I want to know everything that's going on. And number one, God says, you're not capable of it. We don't have enough brain power to know everything that's going on, even within our immediate circle. Much less... Know everything the way he does.
1: Well, then an explanation would be for Christians, we believe that way. For the non-believer, though, they still want to know everything. Of course. They still want to be, have that knowledge so that they can control.
0: Because they're not submitted to to, to God.
1: Yeah. They're eventually wanting to be the
0: top dog. And it's bad enough that Christians do it. Yeah. Okay, because we should know better. We are following a sovereign God and and leader of our life and one we say is our master and our savior and yet we keep going to him, explain yourself, explain yourself. And we may not be quite that bold but every time we say, well, I don't understand. Well, who cares whether you understand? In reality, who cares if I understand or not? God understands. And the question is, do I have enough faith to trust God is leading me in, in the right way and he's only allowing what's good for me to come my way and every time I go God I don't understand I'm going God i uh, you're just not treating me the way I'm supposed to be treated God I'm I'm somebody really special I'm I'm supposed to know everything you know God and I know I'm taking it to the extreme but that's really what we're saying when we're telling God God I just don't understand and most Christians do it unfortunately and we need to just learn to rest in faith God you know what you're doing faith rest God you're in charge you know what you're doing I am just going to rest in what you're allowing come my way that doesn't mean I again I, whenever I say this wanna be careful it doesn't mean I just sit on my butt and do nothing ever it doesn't mean that I just sit there and wait for God to dump things over my head and I've shared this. I've had to work very hard during those times when he was paying, paying my bills to do the jobs that he threw my way. I worked very hard to, to get the money that he allowed me to get. And there's times when we're going to work very hard to do the right things. But God's going to open the doors. And we listen and make, God, is this what you want me to do? And step through doors. If we're just sitting around doing nothing, then we're going to get nothing. Because that's what we deserve. You know, we're sitting there waiting for God, just dump, dump the blessings over my head. Uh, I'm not going to go to work, God. I'm not going to open my Bible. I'm not going to reach out and touch people, but just pour blessing over my head, God. And God's going to say, nope, not going to happen. Not going to happen. And here he sent the disciples out with power to do miracles. Can you imagine what that was? They all know Jesus' power, and all of a sudden now there's 12 new guys running around. Casting out demons, healing people, drawing crowds. Miracles draw crowds. They really do. And the point of these crowds, though, is that God gets lifted up. Too many times people start lifting up their ministry. Look what I'm doing. Look at the power I have. And God will eventually stop ministering through them. But as long as he's lifted up, God will do the miraculous. He'll do wonders for people as long as he is the one that gets the glory. It's God that does this. It's God that does this. How many times do you have people coming into town, writing into town, we're going to have a healing service tonight. The Holy Spirit is going to flow. Well, he might, but who's getting the credit? If the evangelist is trying to get the credit, it's not going to happen because God will do what God wants to do. And he wants to heal numbers of people. Lots of people will get healed if they just pray. James says, as many sickens you, if you're you're sick, go into the church and and get the elders and be anointed with oil and have them pray for you. It's important that we seek seek healing, that we seek the the gifts of God. There's power out there if we just take and apprehend it. If we don't want the power, God's not going to dump power on us if we don't want it. But the gifts of the Spirit come through us praying and seeking God's, God, I want to use them as long as we want to use them for Him. And I would be happy if we had people here that could pray and people get healed and could cast out demons and have no problem with all of that and and be anointed with teaching and all the stuff that comes along with the gifts of the Spirit. It's a powerful place to be. And I love it. I love seeing people healed. I love seeing God move in a very powerful way, but he's not going to do it unless we want it, and many people don't want it. They say they do, they think they do, but they really don't want it, because with power and authority comes responsibility, and the responsibility is to lift God up and not not try to use it to make us, make us look good, because it's not us, and if we're trying to make ourselves look good, it won't work. Jesus told him, and he goes into verse 9, he says, Provide neither gold nor silver, nor brass in your purses, nor script for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor staves, nor, for the workman is worthy of his meat or food. Okay, Jesus said, you're not going out in your own strength. Uh, I can't remember who it was, but there was a school of evangelism that came out of, of uh, England, and they had this very thought. You're to go out and you're to preach the gospel. You're to go into towns, you're not to take money. They didn't even he didn't even allow them to take up offerings. Okay? God, he said, would provide for you. You'll have people, anybody who wanted to give him money, he could take the money to to support, but their missionaries were to go out with no money in their pocket and rent town hall rent halls or tents or whatever it is to do these ministries and minister and never ask for any money and they took it from this this verse go out and earn you know serve god and god will provide for you it's a it's a valid way of going out it takes a lot of faith not everybody can do it jesus had told his disciples to do this and i don't he didn't tell everybody to do this paul did not go out without support on on some of his trips because he tells us he had support from other churches. So this isn't a blanket cover that all people going out have to go out this way. Uh, I've read the biography <laughs> of some people who have done it, and you get some wonderful stories about how God provides. If you've got enough faith to do it, God will do it. Don't take money, don't take extra shoes, don't take extra coats, don't Trouble take a and again, this is not what this is not a blanket cover for all people going out. There's different groups that use this as a blanket cover, but we see Paul collecting money from other churches, people collecting money from different places. It's not, it's not the only way to go. Now, you can go too strong the other direction. There are certain mission organizations that you do not go out until you have twice what you think you need pledged to you because most of the churches aren't going to meet their goals, so you have to have more than what you need pledged. There's the two extremes. There's the absolute nothing, go out in absolute faith, and the other side of be totally prepared. Somewhere in the center is probably where you're good if you're going to go into evangelism. Have have some pledges, have some money set aside, but be ready to step out in faith if that's what it takes. And again, God sent, uh, Jesus sent his disciples out the first time with this command. Go and take nothing with you. He's trying to make a point to them that God will provide for them. And so we see this going out and he says, and... Into whoso, whatsoever city or town you enter, inquire who is worthy, and there abide till you go thence. And when you come into the house, salute it. So, when they entered these towns, they were going, Okay, who's a, who's a hospitable person? Who's a, who's a righteous person? Who's a godly person? And they would be pointed to that house, and they were to go to that person and salute them and say, The peace of God upon you, or whatever, and, and request a place to have meetings. And we want to think about this. In those days, you didn't meet in churches, usually. They had synagogues for the Jews, but usually you met in somebody's home. And that meant in their courtyard or their banquet room, whatever, wherever it was, you met in their house and people came to their house. And that was how you met. So they're saying, go find this person's house and hold some meetings. Tell them about the kingdom of God. Whatever they feed you, you eat. Where, wherever they bed you down is where you bed down. Where, you know, they're, they will be the one supporting you during this time. Christianity, when it first started, was considered a Jewish sect. It was called the Way, and it was considered Jewish. They followed a Rabbi named Jesus, and he was the t- f- Rabbi that they were following, and they considered themselves Jews. This is why, when Jesus l- returned to heaven, and they started preaching and and Gentiles started getting saved, this was a tough position for them to be in. Okay, As far as they're concerned, they're still Jews. They're Jews following Jesus' teaching, and all of a sudden Gentiles are getting saved. Gentiles are getting baptized in the Holy Spirit, getting the power of God put into them. And this is why the disciples in Jerusalem got together to figure out what are we going to do with all these Gentiles that are becoming followers of the way, are we going to make them become Jews with all that that entailed, being circumcised, being baptized into the teachings of Jesus, and and agreeing to follow all the rabbinic all the uh, laws in the Old Testament? Jesus already taught them that that wasn't what it was all about. So they're sitting there trying to figure out, and that's why they came up in the in Acts with this: they need to abstain from from uh, uh, things offered to, uh, uh, idols A
1: huge movement even today similar to that in that they they call themselves Jews but they're actually following the, uh
0: messianic messianic Jews or messianic Christians depending on which level you're talking about are trying to be go back under the law of Moses again and follow everything that's in the scriptures they will do everything that they can to Bring us back in. You have to have to worship on Saturday. You have to stop doing work on Saturday, uh, Friday night because the Sabbath starts on Saturday night. They are actively pushing. You have to blow the shofar on all the holy days. You have to practice all the holy days, even though you can't sacrifice. You still have to practice. And they're kind of they're working both ends of the act together. They, as far as I'm concerned, from my experience with them, they're basically Judaizers. Christ isn't enough. You've got to follow all the law. And that's what they're doing. Some are honest and still believe in Christ more than the law, but they're willing to bring everything from the Old Testament into. Now, there is some beauty in what they're trying to do. And this is what is attractive to people. Okay, they explain the whole Jewish activities really well and how Jesus was, how they picture Jesus and they tie him together. So to some degree, there's a lot of good in what they're doing. I like when we get into this time of the year and, we, and churches will practice seders. Will they get somebody that's a Christian Jew and, and go through all of what Passover is about and show you how, even in the stuff that's not biblical, how Jesus is represented in the entire meal that they do. And one day we'll probably get somebody to come up here when I can afford to pay somebody to, to come up here to do that. It's very informative. It's very good. And that is the good side of the Messianic movement. Okay, to bring in the Old Testament in its depth and draw it into the New Testament and help us understand more about what we are trying to follow. This is why I tell people, I'm going to have every new Christian start in the New Testament, but you never truly understand the New Testament till you understand the Old Testament, Because the pictures of Jesus are so full in the Old Testament and it's brought out. In the new testament when paul talks about the tabernacle that we are the tabernacle of god he has so much more than we as gentiles think about because he's thinking about the tent that they built in exodus leviticus and and all the symbolism of of god and jesus christ that's in that tabernacle and he says, where that tabernacle. And he's thinking about the seven coverings over the, over the holy and holy place. He's thinking of the, the altar of showbread that, that shows the feeding. He's thinking of the menorah with the lamp and the light of the word. He's thinking of the altar altar of incense where they're burning the prayers and they're, they're ascending into heaven. He's thinking about the brass uh, footers of all the tent that between earth, man, and God. Meaning judgment, the judgment has happened. He's thinking of the silver caps on there where God looks down and sees redemption. He's looking at the gold that's all around it that, re, that represents deity and, and majesty. And Paul says, we are the tabernacle of God. And he's saying, why? Because we're in Christ. <laughs> We are his tabernacle because we are in him and he indwells us with everything that the tabernacle represents, including the mercy seat.
1: But then the bottom line is, once they finished at the synagogue, then they would go and meet in someone's home.
0: In this case, no. Jesus told them, don't go to the Gentiles and the Samaritans. Okay, so... But later on, yes. But
1: when they go out, the way you described here, they're headed just for the synagogue.
0: Just for the Jews. Oh. They may not even go to the synagogue. They're going to the Jewish towns to preach to the Jewish people. At this point in time, they're not going out to anything to do with the Gentiles. Well,
1: then, what about the statement there? When you go into the town, and inquire of such and such, then be welcomed.
0: In? You're going to be welcomed into a righteous person's home, a, a Jewish home. Yeah, you're going to be. He's they're in Israel, going to Jewish towns. Okay, they're not leaving. They're not leaving Israel. Yeah, they have not, they're not moving anywhere. At this point in time, all they're ministering is to the Jews. They're giving the Jews the opportunity to make a decision for Christ. Right, okay. Because he says, you're first. Yeah. You're first. And they're they're going to reject. They started rejecting Jesus even at this point. So there's already the rejection of his teaching coming in, and even while he's alive. Yeah. And they're going to keep rejecting it all, all through. And Paul is going to find all these people rejecting him. And he was the one that really established. I go to the synagogue the first uh, first Sabbath day. When I get rejected, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And he started Christian churches everywhere he went because they were rejected. But as far as people were concerned, these churches that Paul starts are Jewish synagogues. They're going to be operated as Jewish synagogues, even though Gentiles are the ones in it. Another
1: question, what about all the Gentiles out there watching these guys head into the synagogue?
0: Once they're rejected, the Gentiles don't go to the synagogues. They, they will be meeting in people's houses. So there's going to be this difference. And it wasn't until about somewhere between 300 and 500 AD that Christian, Christianity was split from so Judaism. there are
1: other believers out there, other than Jewish that are meeting in their homes and proclaiming
0: the word. All through the epistles, most of these churches are not, are, I would say all of them, are not meeting in synagogues. They're meeting in people's homes and possibly building a building if they get big enough, but usually they're just multiple homes that are big. Because some of those homes have very big enclosed areas in, that they could be able to meet in. So yes, it, this originally, Jesus is sending his disciples to the Jews, when they first minister, they're reaching out to the Jews, and the church did not leave Jerusalem for a long time, and even though they were being put under all kinds of persecution, it wasn't until the, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD that, and Jerusalem was basically sacked, that the church left Jerusalem as a, as a whole, and the apostles did what God told them, go into the, all the world, and then they Will spread the gospel all around the world. A time spread
1: there before that
0: came true. There was approximately the close to forty years before the before the majority of the disciples did what they were told to do. Okay. Paul goes Paul goes straight out to witness, to to preach, and he's he's called to the Gentiles, and he's the one that causes them to have to deal with what are we doing with Gentiles. But you also have Philip who went to the Ethiopian, who wasn't a Gentile, but he went to a Gentile Country, and then you've got uh, Peter, who was called to go to, um, yeah, the centurion that uh, Cornelius. Uh, He was told to go to Cornelius's house by God directly. So we have Gentiles being reached even before they break up, but they're more the exception than the rule. Then in 70 A.D., the temple is destroyed, Jerusalem is pretty much wiped out, and the disciples scatter around the empire. And we get Thomas going to India we get we get Peter going up through up through the the southern part of uh, Europe. we've got you know we've got reports that Peter made it all the way to England. That's questionable, but there's reports that he went there. We've got ones going in the south. we We get the whole world being evangelized by the disciples because they were pushed out of Jerusalem. God said, basically, you're not going to leave Jerusalem, I'll just wipe Jerusalem out and you will. Go out and do something. Destroy the temple, you know, that right.
1: Like a good option,
0: yeah, but off. oftentimes for us, that's exactly what God does for us. We get so set in our ways, so comfortable, that God has to shake us up and really rattle our life to say, "I told you to do other things. Get out there and do them." And oftentimes we'll we'll get so set in our ways that we kind of go, "Okay, I'm just happy." It's you and me, God, I'm happy where we're at. And God saying, no, I want you to go someplace else. Abraham did that. God said, leave the Ur of Chaldees and go to the land that I'm going to lead you. And he stops at Haran. And he stays there for decades before he finally moves on. And he doesn't move on until his father dies. The thing that shakes, his, shakes him up. And he goes, okay, now it's time to follow and go do what I was told to do. Many times we get into that way where we just start getting settled in our way, God, I'm just happy, I'm, you know, it's you, me, and and this life that I'm living, and God's going, you're not doing what I told you to do. And if you get that place, be careful, he's going to shake your world up. He's going to shake your world up and say, okay, get moving, get doing what I have told you to do. Because he will do that to us. If you don't feel God leading you and directing you, think back to the last thing you know God told you to do it and get it done. Because God doesn't give you a new instruction until you complete the first one. And that's just the way He does things. He didn't let He didn't give Abraham any other instructions until Abraham got his butt from up from Haran and went to the Promised Land. He didn't give Moses any new instructions until he got up and went and did what he was told to do. We see it over and over in people's lives and in, in our own lives. If you don't see God moving in your life, don't know you don't hear Him talking go do what the last thing you know that he told you to do was, because usually you're not doing what he's told you to do in the first place. And so you go back and you do what he told you to. And then you'll start feeling to move again. And if you don't, he'll shake up your life and make you do it eventually. Uh, So we want to be careful about that. And he says, in here, go to their house who's worthy and abide there. And when you come to their house, salute it. If the house be worthy, let your peace come on it. If not, let your peace return. In other words, God bless this house. Bless these people for what they're, what they're, for the support they're giving us. We see this over and over. Think about Elijah; he has the, the widow who's, who, uh, the woman that he gives that prays for a son. They build him a house at the top of his place. Say, anytime you're in this town, there's your, here's your room. You've blessed us; we're blessing you. You've got a room right here whenever you need it. This has been many cases over the years in the early 1900s and through the 1800s when evangelists would go out to a town. Many times they went just like this. They would make plans and they usually would live at the pastor's house for that night or two or week or whatever they stayed or at somebody in the church would be where they would stay. They would be fed by that family. The church would make sure that they were taken care of. Nowadays, you probably can't find too many evangelists living that way. Well, I'll come, and believe me, I know, I've tried to do it. I'll come to your place, but you've got to pay my, pay my way there with a, you know with a, at least the gas money if I'm close. You've got to put me up in a hotel. You've got to pay for all my food. No faith, no no desire to serve God and trust God. You know Everything up front. Give me everything up front or I'm not coming. This is one thing I love about some of the singing groups that come in. They come up here not knowing whether they're going to get anything, especially when I tell them we've got a small church, and I don't know what you'll get. And they come anyway and I appreciate that because that's showing me that they truly are wanting to minister to God and not just try to make a buck out of the deal. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying it's wrong for these groups to do it, but it gets, you start looking at the scripture and saying, where is your faith? Are you truly ministering or are you trying to build your own kingdom up? And some of them are worth bringing out. You know, they just, some of them are worth bringing out because of how good they are at their, what they do. Some, you go, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if you're worth it or not.
1: I I don't know why I keep thinking about this, but is your faith, I guess what I'm trying to say, is it a, a gift of sorts? Some have more faith than others as a gift from the
0: Holy Spirit. Faith is a gift, but the Bible tells us faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. The more I study God's word, the more faith I will have because I learned to trust him. And how do I exercise my faith? I trust him. The the time, the three years that I did not have a good income was a great faith-building experience for me. Because I watched God do miraculous things to supply. There's
1: got to be a lot of things that enter into it, and it almost leads you to believe that it is a, a gift.
0: It is a gift, but it's also trained I mean, into us. A degree, the right. Um, Because it really comes down to do I believe what you say, God? And He's going to test it. And the more tests you pass, the greater your faith becomes. Why? Because you stop it stops at a point it almost stops becoming faith. God, I have seen you work so many times that I just know you're going to work. That's where I am in my life. It's not, I don't even I don't even believe that it's that much faith anymore. Yes, it's faith because I don't absolutely know. That he's going to do something but because he has been so faithful so many times over the four decades i've been walking with him it's like okay god you've been faithful in my past you've been faithful in all these biographies i've read you've been faithful in the new testament you've been faithful in the old testament god i have absolute trust and faith that you're going to be The more you see him being faithful, the more faith that you're going to have on the bigger things that come your way. It's all a walk. It's all learning to grow. When you're a young Christian, new Christian, your faith level is very low and God doesn't expect you to have great faith to have things happen. He just says, I'm going to be faithful to you what what little tiny faith you have. Then you get into these other things. The same thing I tell you, each test we take is a greater test because it's testing, do I have faith that God's word is true? When he says something, do I have enough faith that it's going to be true? And the more I learn, the more, that I, more faith that I gain, the harder the test is going to be on one side. But by the same token, because I've seen him be faithful so many times, it's an easy test. Okay, God, this seems like a bigger test, but hey, you've been faithful in the past. I'm going to, I'm going to be faithful. I'm just going to have the faith. The test is increasing your faith. The more I get into God's Word, the more I believe His Word, the more I have something to hold on to. How can I hold on to a lot of these things? When bad things happen to me, I grab hold of Romans 8.28, all things work together for good. God, and then I grab hold of God, you are sovereign. I have so much of His Word inside of me that I'm going, okay God, I don't have to understand why you're doing it because you are in charge, you promise nothing that it's all going to be for good. You promise that that you're not going to give me anything that you and I can't get through. Okay, I added that little piece to it because that's the answer. Uh, Therefore, no temptation overtaking you, but such is common to man, but God is faithful. Who will not suffer you? Be tempted above that which you are able to withstand, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape. That escape is Him. So with God and me, nothing is going to take me down because God is going to be faithful. And if I believe that verse, I believe that He is sovereign. I believe that everything is for my, or is for good and I believe that nothing happens that God doesn't know and allow, how much faith can I have? I can have a mountain of faith because all I do is say, God, I don't understand, but you're, you are who you say you are. You are the one that I'm going to trust. I'm not trusting in me because if I was trusting in me, I'd fall flat on my face. i fall flat on my face enough without, without have you know, without. But when we can just point and look and say, God, I'm just going to trust in you. The more we do it, the longer we walk with God, the easier it gets. But by the same token, the harder the test come. Yeah. If we look at the test we're going through today and we kind of think back when we first saved and going, wow, I don't think I could have ever done this when, when I was first saved. You're absolutely right, you couldn't have. You didn't have enough faith to go through what you're going through today successfully because God builds. And each test is going to be progressively harder compared to what it was, but it's just a little harder each time where we're at. Just a little hard. And I love using school as an example. When you first start school, you learn simple stuff. And it builds upon itself until you're starting to study. you, know, you start with one plus one is two. And then you get to high school, and you're supposed to be able to do, start doing algebra. You know, then you get into college, and you're doing calculus and all these other you know, advanced maths. But if you were to hand the kindergartner the calculus problem, they'd look at you like you were insane and, and panic. Uh, Even if you did it to the high school student, they'd look at you if you were insane and and panicked. But once you get there, you've had enough built-up experience that, yes, it's challenging, but I can understand it and and I can figure this out. This is the way our Christian walk is. He starts us with one plus one test, then he takes us into multiplication test, then he takes us into algebra test, and on and on until we're doing more advanced things. And if we were struggling with him when we first got saved, we'd, we'd, we'd just fall keel over dead because, God, there's no way I can do that. But because he's progressed us up that and we've learned to trust him in, in small areas, every victory we have with him builds our faith in what he can do for us in the future. And if it doesn't, we've got a problem. We're not really trusting in him if it's not building our faith. I learn more of His Word, I learn more to trust on Him, and that builds my faith, and I build my faith to the place where whatever comes my way, I'm going, okay, God, don't need to understand it, don't need to have to care because you're the one in charge, I am your slave, do with me as you want. If that means you're going to put me in pain for for years, then so be it, I'll be in pain, as long as that's what you want, your grace is sufficient for me. You want to make me live in the poorhouse and minister to all the people that are poor, all right, God, just give me enough to survive. God, you want to make me, give me great blessings of wealth? You know, that's actually a great test for most people because that's hard to stay honorable to God when you have plenty of wealth because you get so many temptations on all the other things that you can do. You know, I would love to just have enough money to just travel around and just stop wherever I want with an RV and go visit places. I will never do it because I am too devoted to church. Even before I became a pastor, I was too devoted to church to do, even though it would be a fun thing to do. I would love to just bounce around traveling like that. I can't say never, who knows what God has in store, but I can't see it happening in the near future. But God could say, okay, you're gonna be a traveling evangelist here. We're gonna do this for you. I don't I don't expect that to happen. I don't think my wife would like that kind of lifestyle. Uh, but who knows what God can do. But until he gave me the grace to do it, it's not going to happen because I minister in the church and always have ministered in churches. And even before I was a pastor, I ministered in churches. There was a d- dedicated job that I had with the church to make things happen. Our faith is built over a series of transactions that we have with God. He, he, he gets us through this area and we go, okay, God, yeah, look how faithful you were. God, you did this really great. You, know, you really blessed me in this by doing this. Next thing we come, well, God blessed me before. I expect him to bless me this time. He provided here. He's going to provide here. We keep moving forward, and we just have this great expectation. Because you have been faithful in the past, your word is teaching me that you're faithful. Your word is teaching me about how you're the sovereign God, that you care for me, that you love me, that nothing bad, nothing outside of your will is going to happen. I might be Job, and everything, going to, everything that seems bad is going to be happening to me, but God, you still have a plan for it and I will be willing to accept what you want me to go through. We get to that point. Then we start watching what happens in our life, and sometimes pretty hard things happen in our life. But God has built our faith to be able to say, God, you and I are going to get through this. God, you and I are in this sinking boat, but you're the master of the storm, and you can get rid of the storm. God, you and I are in this crowd of hungry people, and we've got five... Five loaves and, and uh, two fish, uh, you can you can you can make it, you can take care of it. God, we've got this whole bunch of people that need to be healed, but that because of my faith and your power, you can you can heal. God, whatever it might be, <laughs> God, I don't see how this is going to work out, but it's in your hands. If it's something you want to do- be done, it's going to happen. And I can tell you right now, when I was without the job, I, I had an agreement with God. I go, God, here's my agreement. As long as you pay my bills, I'm not going to look for another job. Because the only job that kept sticking in my head was going back to restaurants. And I'm a good restaurant manager. would have been very successful. I would have making 50, 60, 70 thousand a year in a restaurant if I had gone back to it, but I also wouldn't be the pastor of a church. And I go, God, I don't want to do this. As long as you pay the bills, <laughs> I won't even consider going back to these jobs. I kept reading in the papers. And every time I opened the uh, ads, there would be this job, restaurant manager needed in this such and such restaurant, or this (laughs) restaurant, and this restaurant. And I'm going, nope, God, not gonna go there. You're, You're gonna pay the bills. And that was a temptation, that was a test. And the faith was built by staying honorable to God and saying, God, I'm going to follow you. I'm gonna keep seeking you. And this is where we come. God, when we're in the middle of that test, Satan's going to throw all kinds of quick answers to us. I can get out of this test just by doing this. I can get out of this test just by doing this. And God is going to say, who are you going to be faithful to? Are you going to be faithful to me? Or are you going to do things in your flesh? Sometimes God will say, go do something. Okay, but make sure it's God, not just the quick and easy answer. Too many times we take the easy answer, the human answer, and it's not the right answer. I've done that many times in my life. I've done things that I thought was God's will because they were the easy answer. And being a husband and a, and a father, it didn't just hurt me. Sometimes I didn't even get hurt. The, the last time I did this, my, my kids got hurt with their spiritual place in life. And two of them f- pretty much fell away from God. One came back and the other one hasn't come back yet because I made a move that I thought was a good move and didn't really include God in it. And I didn't grow as much as I should have, I'm sure. And two of my kids suffered in a great manner. And then we suffered financially. So we need to be careful about taking the easy way out and making sure that we're praying to God all the time and saying, God, what is it that you want me to do? And I've said this before, Satan often will test us with good rather than the best and God wants the best for us and a lot of times if Satan can't keep a Christian from serving God they get saved and you know he's happy if they get saved and all they do is sit on their butt on the pews but if he can't keep them from sitting on the pews because they're gonna come out to services and get active in the church he sometimes will go the exact other extreme and get them too active and get them burnt out doing hundreds of things in the church you know, being so busy doing lots of good things and they burn out and then you'll hear them say things well well God just wasn't faithful and I got so sick of doing you know doing all these things well maybe you were doing too much I, I am absolutely convinced that everybody in a church has at least one job to do in the church at least one probably no more than three or four jobs maximum for the average person Some people can do more and not be burnt out and be doing just what God wants. But if everybody in the church did the one job that they were supposed to do, imagine what a church could accomplish if everybody just got off their butts on the pews and did one job, whatever that job might be. And I don't know what those jobs might be. Many times when I was at College Park people go, well, you know, the church should be doing such and such ministry. I go, that's a really good idea. Let me help you get it started. What? I don't want to do it. Well, who do you think's going to do it? The pastor has too much to do, and I have too much to do. But God put it on your heart. You're the person to be doing it. I'll, I'll be more than happy. I'll help you get the budget. I'll help you find the people. I'll even help you get it off the ground. And usually people didn't want to do it. But you know what? In reality, it's something they should have done. God had put it on their heart for that ministry. They should have been doing the ministry. And I wasn't being facetious with them. I was trying to help them. I literally would have helped them get it started, get the people to help them get it going, get them the budget to help them get it going, as long as they were willing to do the work that God had put on their heart. Sent them out. Go minister God's kingdom. And if they bless you, leave your blessing there. And then we're going to finish this this, uh, paragraph out. And whosoever shall not receive you nor hear your words... When you depart out of the house or city, shake off the dust off your feet. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city or that house. God says if they're going to reject me and your ministry, they're going to have a harder time than even Sodom and Gomorrah did. And Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. But they were destroyed in the physical realm and he's saying, if they reject you, they're going to be rejected for eternity. And that means hell. Now, most of Sodom and Gomorrah went to hell as well, but, but it, some of them were righteous. Some of them were not as bad. Some of them were followers of God. And he says, it'll be more tolerable for those who reject your ministry, uh, more to- tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah, it was totally destroyed, than it will be for those who reject the ministry of God. And this is what we need to look at. When people reject us as we share the gospel, they're not rejecting us. They're rejecting God. And that's what we need to always keep in mind. They're not rejecting... When I give a message and nobody responds to to it, they're not rejecting me. They're rejecting the message that God gave them. They're, They're rejecting the gifts that God's holding out to them, and there's consequences for that. And we just need to keep that in mind. We present. That's all our job is. We throw the seed out. What they do with it is going to be up to them. We may be watering the seed that's been thrown out there. And every once in a while, we get to harvest the seed that has grown. And usually, we're not the one that planted the seed in the first place. It was planted by somebody else years ago, usually. And we just get the privilege of being the one that gets to escort them to the Father. And that's a, that is, I hope you understand what a great privilege that is. To be able to sit down with somebody and pray with them to accept Jesus Christ is a great privilege. And I don't take it lightly. I know that I'm not the only one that's had an input in their life. I know that for a fact because sometimes I've done street evangelism. I know that I'm not the first one that I've ever talked to. And they've heard it from other places and other people. And finally, I just get to be the one that says, yes, I want to I accept him. And we have to be ready to ask, do you want to know Jesus? Do you want him to be your Lord and Savior? We need to learn to make sure we ask that question of people because that's how they're going to get saved. That's what's going to lead them to Christ. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us and care for us. Lord, help us to be very bold in our witness. Help us to seek after your power and your strength so that we can you will be lifted up in all that goes on around us. Lord, build our faith. Even though it takes trials and tribulations and hardships to build faith, we accept that that's what's going to happen, Lord, and prepare our hearts to be ready to face these and to have our faith built through the trials and tribulations you put us through. In Jesus' name, amen.